Welcome to Quinton Baptist Church. Nice to see all your smiling faces. Today there will be refreshments right here in the back. Everyone is welcome. Please join us and have some fellowship. In your bulletin there is a directory update sheet. This is for members and attenders. If there is no change, please go ahead and put your name on the sheet and mark same and please turn that in. Puzzle Mania will be on Friday, March the 1st at 6 o'clock. So please sign up for that. And even if you do not want to do a puzzle, please come and join us anyway. Have a nice time. Our Easter egg hunt is a month away. And if you're interested, please check the bulletin and donate. Drop them off at the church office. 
And today's flowers have been placed by Naomi Fogg and family in loving memory of Ron Fogg. Please check your bulletin for other announcements and Mike McGowan has a special announcement. This is a very special announcement. The Pulpit Committee has reviewed the qualifications of Pastor Jason Heckley to be senior pastor of Quinton Baptist Church and conducted an interview with him. He has also been interviewed by the Deacon Board and Trustee Board. It is recommended that a special business meeting be held on Wednesday, March 6, 2024 at 7 p.m. And at that meeting, the following motion be made that the congregation of Quinton Baptist Church accept Pastor Jason Heckley as our senior pastor. As a prelude to the business meeting, there will be a congregational question and answer session with Pastor Jay on Sunday, March 3rd, during the Sunday school hour. So March 6th, a vote. March 3rd, a question and answer session. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this announcement. We thank you how, you how you lead and how you take care of us. We thank you for our church and our church family, Lord. Father, we ask your blessings for your, upon our service this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit will touch each and every heart and every life this morning, Lord. We thank you for our pastor. We thank you for the messages that you give to him. We just ask your blessing upon each and every word that's said today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Please stand and sing with us.
Yes, please be seated. And Lord, we pray before you this morning, Lord, we worship you. We praise you that you live and that because of that we are alive, Lord. That that's the f foundation of everything that we say we believe is that not only that you died for us, but you rose again, that you live, and you're a living God, and you're active here even this morning in each one of our lives. And Lord, as we gather before you, as we worship you, Lord, we pray that we would look to make your name great. We look to rejoice in our risen King, our Savior, and our Lord. And Lord, it's in your name that we gather today, and we bring these requests before you, Lord. We, first of all, we praise you uh, that uh, Sherman Miller was able uh, to return home this past week. And Lord, we know he's still got a long road ahead of him. But Lord, we praise you that he's taken a positive step. And we just pray that that would continue as he uh, just keeps up with these more treatments. We pray that you would just bless him and bring healing to him. We also praise you that uh, Denise Ridgway uh, was able to come home and that uh, her stay at the hospital wasn't too long and things got taken care of. Uh, we do just pray for continued healing for her. Uh, we praise you that uh, John Croce is here this morning, Lord, and that he's uh, doing better. And, uh, he seems to be going in the right direction, Lord. We know, again, he's got a long road of recovery as well. We do just pray as he meets with different uh, doctors and uh, follow-up appointments, Lord, that he, you would just uh, direct the doctors and you'd bring healing to him completely. Lord, we do uh, just pray for the family of Betty, Lord, uh, Sarah Jane Kiker's uh, fa just family, Lord, as they mourn her passing. We pray that you would surround them with your love and uh, just bring a peace to them during this time. And we do just pray um, just for the services that are going to come uh, following about that, Lord. We do just pray that you would be glorified um, and Betty would be honored. Lord, we do uh, just continue to pray for Betty Brennan, Lord. We pray that you just uh, continue to heal her, Lord. We praise you that uh, she is finding some healing, Lord. We do just pray that you would continue to bring healing to her. Lord, we do pray for uh, Eddie, Lord, a friend of Linda Seitz, uh, as he's in the hospital. We do just pray uh, for healing for him. I know there's uh, multiple things happening there. We do just pray uh, that you would just uh, bring healing to him, um, that you'd be with the doctors as they take care of him. You would just give them uh, just the wisdom to know exactly what to do. Lord, we do uh, just praise you that uh, uh, Sarah Campbell had her kidney stone removed, Lord, and that everything went well with that. We do just pray that you would bring healing to her, Lord, and that you would just bless the Campbells and their ministry for you, Lord, that you would just help them to continue to uh, just be able to serve you. And Lord, we do pray the same thing for our missionaries of the month, uh, the Kite family, Lord, Skip and Rosie. We do just praise you uh, for their ministry and for their love for you. We pray that you would bless them in their ministry. We pray that you bless their family, Lord, that you would uh, just be with Jesse and uh, Caleb and Amanda, Lord, that you would just uh, bless their entire family. And Lord, we pray a special just blessing on Skip, Lord, as he just continues to serve you and reach out um, into the community, especially uh, just dealing with uh, children and reaching children with the gospel message. We do just pray uh, that you'd bless him, that you'd bring fruit to his ministry. And Lord, as we continue in worship this morning, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be uh, directed towards you, uh, Lord, that we would be um, changed by you and that we would rejoice in you this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's continue to worship in the song. And as we sing these songs, children in first through third are dismissed for Children's Church. Please stand.
please be seated. Please take your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 17, 17 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 30. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, and the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother's will will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the, official, to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thank you, Joe. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, as we approach this passage, as we approach your word, Lord, we recognize that it's your words. Lord, it's your authority that we carry in it, Lord. And as we approach that, as we talk about that this morning, I pray that you would impact each person's life, that you would be the one to speak to us. I pray that we would have hearts ready to listen, ready to hear from you this morning. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. I want to start off with a question this morning. What is it that makes an athlete truly elite? You know, kind of going above and beyond even the professionals around them, but the truly elite athlete, what, what makes that athlete? 
We don't have slides. Okay. <laughs> All right. What makes an athlete truly elite? Um, well, okay. What makes an athlete truly elite? What makes them above and beyond uh, all the other athletes around them? And there's probably multiple answers to that question, but one of the answers is that they hold themselves to a higher standard. They have a higher expectation uh, for what they need uh, to, in order to succeed. Michael Jordan, uh, he has this quote. He says, if you, ha uh, you have competition every day because you've set such high standards for yourself that you have to go out every day and live up to those standards. Another quote by Nick Foles, the Super Bowl winning quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, he says, I've always held myself to high standards. And you know, that really makes a difference when you're an athlete and things get difficult for you. You have this high standard. You push yourself to that. So what about in the Christian life? What about in our faith? We're continuing this morning our series, Building on the Rock, looking through the Sermon on the Mountain. It's teaching that Jesus has for his disciples. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the idea of blessed, and Jesus talked about who is the people who are blessed, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then last week, we talked about the call that we have on our lives to be salt and light in the world around us, that we're supposed to let people know that we're Christians, we're supposed to impact the world around us for it. Well, today we're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to look at how Jesus talks about standards and what type of standard we should have in our Christian life. So the first thing that Jesus talks about is he starts by talking about the topic of the law. Let's read what he says starting in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the very first thing that Jesus starts talking about is he starts by talking about the law. And he starts by talking about the law and the prophets. And he says, some people think that I've come to abolish them. I've come to get rid of them. He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. You see, some people during his day were saying, Jesus is coming along to set a new standard for how things were going to be going. And it was going to be different than before. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to get rid of what came before me. I haven't come to abolish that. Instead, I've come to fulfill that. I think today even people treat Jesus like that. They say, okay, so the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. In the God of the Old Testament, you have this angry God who has a ton of rules. And then Jesus comes along and he's all about grace and love and acceptance. And it's totally different from the God of the Old Testament. And the Bible never presents God like that. In fact, what we see is one unified God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, is Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, we not only see the commandments of God, but we also see God's love and mercy. And in the New Testament, we don't just see Jesus as a loving and merciful person. We also see commands that he gives us on how we're supposed to live our lives. So this isn't about Jesus replacing the law. Instead, he says, I'm here to fulfill them. 
So what does it mean to say that Jesus fulfills the law? That Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? And the answer is that Jesus is the point of it all. Jesus is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. Um, if you were to paint a picture of the Bible, Jesus would be the center. It's all pointing to him. He's the peak of the story. If, if the uh, Bible was one big narrative, Jesus is the peak of the entire story. He says, I am what it's all about. And if we look in the Old Testament, that's what we see. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the big problem of the Old Testament gets presented. And the big problem is man is a sinful man. And how do we reconcile this great holy God with this sinful man? And that's the question that the Old Testament asks for us. And it answers it in different ways as God establishes a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. As God sets up uh, commands for them to follow. As he sets a high priest to be the mediator between God and Israel. As he has them sacrifice in order to cover the sins of the people. And all of that is pointing to Jesus. Everything that we see in the law points to Jesus. Jesus is the high priest. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the sacrifice, the one who pays the penalty for our sin. He's the one who answers the question from Genesis 3. How can a holy God be reconciled to a sinful people? And the answer is the blood of Christ. So Jesus says, don't think I've come to get rid of the law. I haven't come to get rid of it. I've come to fulfill it. And then Jesus takes a step forward. He says, because of that, anyone who wants to get rid of the law, anyone who wants to uh, get rid of any of it, anyone who doesn't teach it, is going to be the least in the kingdom. He says, none of it's going to pass away. Not a dot, not an, not an iota. The iota is a very small Hebrew letter. So what Jesus is saying is, not even the littlest letter is going to pass away until it gets accomplished. And anyone who tries to cut it short, anyone who tries to relax anything that's in there, is going to be considered least. But those who practice it and those who teach it are going to be those who are great. And then Jesus makes a statement in verse 20. And this is, I think, the statement that would have shocked anyone who is listening to him. This is what he says. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? Back in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people. If no one else is going to enter the kingdom of God, it's going to be the scribes and Pharisees because they were the righteous people. And Jesus says, no, you need to exceed that. That would be like me standing up this, today and saying, unless you are a better Christian than Billy Graham or David Jeremiah or some of the great preachers of today, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like that's, that's a really high standard. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to raise the expectation of what it looks like to live for the Lord and to meet his standard. A lot of the uh, scribes and Pharisees at that point in time would have said, you know, we do enough righteousness. We do enough good things. We're good enough for God. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to go above and beyond. And then what Jesus is going to do, and this is what covers the rest of chapter 5, it's like the next 20-something verses, Jesus is going to lay out six different illustrations of what he means by saying, you must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is going to lay out six different times, and he's going to use this repeated statement. He's going to say, you have heard it was said, 
And then he's going to say, but I say to you. So what he's going to do is he's going to say, you've heard it was said, and then he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to say, this is what has been taught to you, but there's going to be this new thing. This is what I'm saying to you. And you see uh, the verses that are on the screen of all the different times that Jesus makes those almost word-for-word statements. And one time, I think he varies it just slightly. Um, But pretty much it's word-for-word that he says that statement over and over and over again. And he lays out six different illustrations of what this is going to look like. And we're going to cover these illustrations, not all of them this week. We're going to cover it in two weeks. Um, This week, we're just going to look at the first two. And then next, next time, we're going to look at the next four But I want to get to kind of his punchline of the entire unit. After he gives all these illustrations, when you get to the very last verse of Matthew chapter 5, the verse 48, I want you to look all the way down there. And this is the standard that Jesus is going to set. He's going to say, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard that Jesus is putting out there. Now, that's very different than what the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching. They were, they were teaching, you know, if you do these good things, if you are good enough, then you hit the standard. And Jesus is saying, no, the standard is perfection. The standard is so much higher than you guys think it is. And that should, first of all, bring us to a very strong reality. And that reality is we are all going to fail that standard. And I think that's the point, Right? Jesus is spelling out for us what the standard is so that we know we don't hit it. That we are sinners. That sin separates us from God. That we're not going to get to the kingdom of heaven by our good deeds. We're not going to be good enough at any point in time for God. We fail the standard. So what's that supposed to do to us? And the answer is it's supposed to cause us to look for something else besides our own deeds, in order to earn righteousness from God. And that person is Jesus. Because Jesus, as he lays out these standards, Jesus then keeps these standards. Jesus lives out the perfect life. He actually matches the standard that's laid out before him. And then he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang that song earlier. And it's to say that it's through his blood And through his paying the penalty of our sin, that we can have righteousness. Not because we match the standard, but because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. But I think that this passage also has a second thing that it's trying to teach us. Besides teaching us that we don't hit the standard, it's also teaching us that we should strive after the standard. That as people who've placed our faith in Jesus, who are forgiven of our sins, who rely on the blood of Jesus for our righteousness, we should then also, as believers, we should strive to meet that standard. We should strive after the Lord, knowing that we're never going to hit it exactly. We're always going to fail, but having that standard before us pushes us towards being more and more like Christ. Kind of like an athlete. You know, an athlete, they're standard in a game is to play a perfect game and they're going to make mistakes in the game every athlete does but they're striving after that standard and they push themselves to that and if the athlete if their standard coming into the game was ah i'm just going to try to be all right this game then that's not going to work you strive after god's standard and as people who have believed in god that's what we are called to do to strive after god's standard knowing that when we fail The blood of Jesus Christ is there. The mercy of God is there to cover it. 
So Jesus is going to give six illustrations of what this looks like, and we're just going to cover the first two this week. And the first two really have kind of a, a similar theme, and the theme is that uh, it's not just about our actions in life, but it's about our thoughts. That God cares more about just what we do, He cares about our hearts. And this is something that isn't new. Jesus isn't like teaching something brand new to the people. In fact, you see this idea all the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. It says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And what that verse is saying is you, the Lord's saying, listen, these people honor me with the lips. They do the right things. They keep the commandments because they're scared of what could happen, but their hearts are not with me. And God says, I don't care just about the action. I care about the heart. And we're going to see that play out in these first two specifically. So let's jump into the two illustrations that Jesus gives us. The first one is he says, there needs to be a higher standard on murder. Let's see what he says, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the first topic that Jesus weighs in on is the topic of murder. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And the people who've heard that know it's from one of the Ten Commandments. That's actually the Sixth Commandment. If you read all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments are laid out, it's the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Murder is the unjust taking of another human life. Murder is one of the oldest sins in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And the reason that the Bible lays out that murder is wrong is because each individual human life is made in the image of God and we therefore have value because of that. If you look in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the Lord says this. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Why is murder wrong? Because we are made in the image of God. But Jesus says, you know, that's the, that's the original command in Many of us, hopefully all of us in this room, can pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, I've never committed murder, so I'm good. Uh, I'm good. I don't have any bodies laying in, in my backyard. I'm, I'm good. I've kept the standard. And Jesus says, you think that alone keeps the standard? And Jesus says, no, the standard's higher than that. And Jesus starts dealing with our thoughts and our emotions. He says, whoever is angry with his brother, is guilty. Now that word anger is deeper than just kind of uh, an emotional word. It's a deep-seated resentment, bitterness, hatred towards somebody. The Bible does teach that you can have righteous anger. You can have anger and not sin. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there is a way to be angry and not sin. There's a way to have righteous anger. 
But that anger is concerning the things of God. It's not a selfish anger. It's not a self-centered anger. It's not an anger that's based on our own personal offense. It's an anger for the Lord's sake. And if we're honest, I think that most of the time that we get angry, it's not that. <laughs> I think that there are times that we can't have righteous anger, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying those who have a self-centered anger, this unrighteous anger. And he says if you've had that anger, then he says you're guilty of murder. And then he goes a step further. He says, how about how you talk to each other? He says, whoever insults his brother or calls his brother nothing. And then he says, anyone who says you fool will be guilty. And then Jesus does something uh, that's really uh, difficult for me. It's convicting to me because what does Jesus say if you insult your brother? He says, you're guilty of hell. He brings up the topic of hell and the topic of anger. Like, that is the consequences of the anger. That's serious. That's not something that's light. That's not something that we can just brush off. That's something that's serious. A lot of times when we talk about anger, there's this general feeling of like, well, what is really bad about it? Like, is it really that bad? I'm not doing anything. Therefore, it must not be that bad. It's just something that, you know, I kind of have going on inside of me. I'm just angry at them. Like, what's so wrong about that? And the Bible doesn't lay it out like that. It says that it is wrong. I'll give you just a couple quick reasons why it's wrong. First of all, anger hurts our relationship with other people. The Lord calls us to love each other, and anger hurts that relationship. A second thing that anger does is it hurts our perspective on other people. It views other people not in terms of who they are as children of God or those loved by the Lord, but it views them in terms of how we feel at the moment. You know, that person becomes a subject of our anger instead of someone made in the image of God. Another reason that anger is wrong is anger often spreads. One of the things that we often do when we get angry is we go tell somebody. We bring in a third party and we explain to them why we're so angry at somebody and all the things that they did wrong and we end up impacting other people's relationships with each other. And then ultimately... Another reason that anger is wrong is it hurts us because it robs us of joy and it sins against the Lord and breaks our relationship with Him. If we are caught up in anger, then we are not caught up in the Lord. And then Jesus lays out two illustrations. Now, these two illustrations are not designed to include everything that there is to say about the topic of anger, but it's just two illustrations that Jesus paints for us. And the first one has to do with worshiping and putting an altar before the Lord. And Jesus says, listen, if there's somebody who's putting an altar before the Lord but remembers that there's a problem with another brother or sister, that you should go do something about it. Leave your offering on the altar and go do something about it. And then Jesus gives a second analogy, and the second one has to do with courts. And he says, listen, if you're on your way to court with somebody, deal with it before you get there. Because it's going to be better for you. He spells out, you know, it's not going to work out for you if you don't deal with it before you get to court. So what's the point of these two illustrations? And I think the point is that Jesus says, listen, if you have a problem with a brother, deal with it now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Don't say, eh, I'll see if it just goes away over time. That's not what anger does. Anger turns into resentment. It turns into bitterness. It turns into hatred. So Jesus says, if you have a problem, deal with it now. Deal with it sooner instead of later. 
So what can we do about our anger? I'm just going to give three quick kind of application points on how we can deal with our anger. The first thing that we need to do when we're angers, angry is we need to slow down and we need to evaluate our anger. We need to say, okay, hold it up. Why am I angry here? What is it that I'm angry about? And I think if we do that, then we'll see that at least half of the things we're angry about, if not more, are just things that we were offended because of the way something played out. Maybe the person didn't necessarily mean what they said. They might have said something loosely and it just offended us and we got angry. And We should slow down and first of all just evaluate our own selves. Say, you know, am I just angry because I got offended? Am I just angry because of my own selfishness? Am I just angry because I didn't get my way? We need to start by just stop, stopping, slowing down and analyzing ourselves and figuring out why we're angry. A second thing that we do, we should do is go and talk to the person, just like Jesus lays out in his two illustrations. Go and deal with it. If you have anger with someone, go and have a conversation with them. Now, it's important for me to say right up front that how we have that conversation is also important, right? We can't just go in guns blazing, ready to light the person up with all the things that we're angry at. That's not a helpful conversation. We should approach the conversation with humility and not accusations was seeking to understand and not condemn with a goal of peace and not making the problem worse. We need to approach those conversations right, but we need to go have conversations. We need to say, listen, is there something I've done to offend you? Is there, because there's some problem in our relationship and I want to get it worked out. And having that conversation is a big step. And then the third thing is just forgive. The Bible talks a lot about forgiveness. We even talked about it a few weeks ago, that the Lord has forgiven us such a great debt, but then he calls us to forgive each other. And I know that that's difficult, especially when some of the things done against us have been really bad. But the Bible calls us to forgive. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship with that person is going to go back to the way it was before, that everything is going to be peaceful again. That may not happen. But we, on our part, can do what we can to forgive people and to try to make the peace with the people around us. It may never work out. You may never have a great relationship, but we can do what's on our end to keep peace with people. So that's the first thing that Jesus lays out. is this higher standard on murder, and he talks about it's not just what's done outwardly, but it's what's done inwardly. And then Jesus goes to a second illustration, and the second illustration is on adultery, and he says we need to raise the standard on what the expectation is for adultery. In verse 27, this is what he says. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members then let your whole body go into hell. So Jesus then brings up the topic of adultery. And adultery is also one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Seventh Commandment in Exodus chapter 20. It's laid out. And the reason that adultery is wrong is that it breaks God's goal for marriage. God's goal for marriage from all the way from the beginning, all the way in Genesis chapter 2, is that it would be one man and one woman joined together in union and that that union would be an exclusive union. There wouldn't be any third parties in that union. It would be two people united in the Lord. And 
Adultery breaks that union. It breaks the exclusiveness of that union. And because of that, adultery is wrong. But Jen Jesus is going to say, well, let's also raise the standard here. Because adultery isn't just what happens outwardly. Jesus says, I tell you that if you look with lustful intent, that you've committed adultery in your heart. That's a much higher standard. You know, oftentimes when I talk with people about the topic of lust and desire, they often say, well, if I don't do anything, then things are okay. And that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, if you've looked with lustful intent, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. The word here that is used is the word lust or desire. Um, that word in the Bible can actually mean a good thing. It can be a positive desire, but it can also be a very negative desire. It can be a sinful desire. And it's, it's sinful if the desire is desiring something that doesn't belong to you, something that is not yours to have. And that's, that's the way it's used here. That it's something that is not for you to have. And you're lusting and desiring after it. Now, before I go any further, I do want to say that this passage is specifically talking about adultery. And there are some people in this room who aren't married. And you can say, well, I don't have to apply this then. It doesn't really matter to me because I'm not committing adultery. And the answer is the Bible beyond this passage talks a lot more about other types of immorality and fornication. In fact, uh, one of the verses that I want to point out was Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Where it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. And he says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And what you see there is this broader discussion of immorality. And within that, there's also this discussion of your desires, your evil desires and sinful desires. So what I have to say about this topic of lust applies to both people who are married and who aren't married. Here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is specifically referring to within marriage. But a lot of this applies from a biblical perspective to not just people who are married, but people who aren't married as well. Lustful desires is not something that God has for any of us. So what's so bad about having this lustful desire for someone? You know, again, I said... Normally, when I have conversations about the topic of lust, people say, well, it's not that big of a deal. And even the world today is saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's common. It's something that everyone does. As long as you're not hurting anyone, as long as you're not uh, doing anything, then it's, it's okay, right? And Jesus says, no, it's not. Because Jesus' standard has to do with what's in our heart. So what is so bad about having his desires? I'll give you... Four quick things that are so bad, and this is probably not exclusive, or this is probably not everything, but it's just four, uh, four reasons. First of all, it's breaking God's commandment. It's breaking God's design. It's rebelling against God's design for marriage and what marriage is supposed to look like. The second thing that it does is it hurts our marriage and it hurts our spouse because it breaks the exclusive ex exclusivity. We're not faithful to them. It breaks that relationship and it hurts that relationship. And it hurts them. The third thing that it's wrong about is, is it also has an impact on the way you view people of the opposite gender as a whole. They become a tool for you to fulfill your own gratification instead of people made in the image of God. And it impacts the way you view other people. 
And then the fourth thing, if all of those others isn't enough of a reason, the fourth thing is that it actually hurts you as a person. As you break your own faithfulness, it hurts you as a person. The studies have already been done that show the negative impacts of lust, specifically internet lust is where a lot of the research has been done. But on that topic, the studies have been done that it overall hurts people. Like it just does. Participating in it hurts you as a person. So because of all of those reasons, it's not something we need to be doing. So what can we do about it? Give, again, just three quick points on what we can do about the topic of lust. The first one is to repent and confess it. Um, I truly do believe that lustful desires thrive in silence. They thrive when we're hiding them away from the world. They thrive when they're just being done in private. And they're not supposed to be there. We need to, first of all, we need to acknowledge that God sees our activity. And we need to repent of our activity to God. We need to confess it to God. And then specifically, if you're married, you need to confess your sin to your spouse. Because you've sinned against them. And we need to go to them and be clear about that with each other. Second thing that we need to do is get help. Um, it's hard to overcome this by yourself. The topic of lust is very difficult to overcome by yourself. There's a lot of support out there today with counseling and accountability people and even support groups that deal with this topic. I encourage you to get help to do something about it. And then the third thing is just a set safeguard. Set up things that will protect you from being tempted. There's a lot of great programs on computers that you can now um, install on your computer that protects what's on your computer or on your phone. Just one example of that is there's an organization called Covenant Eyes, and they have a program that you can install on your computer that protects the computer from going to certain websites. There's also practical things. Where we go and where we spend our time, are we taking safeguards to make sure that that's not leading us into temptation? What, are, what we're focusing on, what we're thinking about, are we making sure our minds are in the right place so that we don't go into temptation? But the ultimate point that I want to get to with this passage is it's a very serious issue. Jesus doesn't deal with this topic lightly, right? What does he say about this? He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And then, just like with the topic of anger, Jesus brings out the topic of hell. And Jesus says, this is the consequences of this activity. Jesus doesn't treat this lightly. He says, do something about the issue. Deal with it. Now, I don't necessarily recommend people cut out their eyes or cut off their arms, partially because that doesn't actually solve the issue of lust, right? <laughs> that, but that just shows how extreme we are supposed to deal with this issue. So ours is it something we're dealing with. Is it something we're trying to do something about? Or are we just accepting it because we have lower standards? So that's the first two of Jesus' six points. Next time, we're going to cover the next four but ultimately, the whole backbone of everything that Jesus is saying is, listen, you need to have higher standards. A lot, you can't just get, get by saying, I'm good enough. Jesus says, good enough is not good enough. 
You have to have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You need to be perfect. And as we come to that realization in this passage, we should first of all be driven to our knees because we realize how much we aren't perfect, how much we break this. The higher the standard, the more we realize how much we don't meet it. And that should be one of the first things that we take away from this. And as we don't meet that standard, that's where God's grace gets involved. That's where the blood of Jesus Christ becomes so central to what we think and what we believe that we need the blood of Christ to forgiveness of our sins because we do not hit that standard. But as then people who are saved, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is our standard? What's our expectation of ourselves? Are we letting ourselves off the hook with sin? Are we saying, eh, I'm good enough? Or are we saying, no, I want to serve the Lord all the way. I want to go all the way with the Lord. You know, in Revelation, Jesus is talking with the seven churches, and the one church, he says, listen, you guys are lukewarm. You say that what you have is good enough. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be hot. I want you to be on fire for me. So where is our standard with the Lord? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you in Jesus Christ are the fulfillment of that word, the fulfillment of the law. And that you have such a high standard that you are not a God who accepts sin. You're a God who stands in righteousness. But Lord, we are also so thankful that although you have the standard of perfection, the standard of righteousness, that you also have love for us. And you sent Jesus to die to pay the penalty for our sin, our failure to meet your standard. And Lord, I pray that everyone here today would look to that, the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Because each one of us is a sinner and needs you. I pray for anyone here this morning who may have not believed in that, may have not placed their faith in you, that are still trying to make it on their own standard. I pray that we wouldn't live by our standard. We would live by the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that it gives us. And Lord, as then people who are saved, Lord, I pray that we would then strive to be more like you. We would strive towards your standard. That we wouldn't just accept being good enough but we would pursue you with all of our heart. For all these things in your name, amen. Pastor Jay said something about being drawn to our knees. This song we're going to sing is a song that would definitely spur us on to be drawn to our knees and recognize all that God did for us by arresting death so that we could live. Please stand as we sing. Thank you.
today we want to remind everyone that we are having fellowship back in the foyer uh, so just uh, get some snack enjoy some time with each other talk with somebody this morning and Lord as we go out today Lord we pray that we would be people who strive after you Lord we praise you for your mercy and your grace that you bestowed on each one of us and we pray that we would because of that be drawn closer and closer to you we pray all these things in your name
Amen.